friends, welcome back to another episode of Faith in You, You, the podcast for everyone. My name is Reverend McKinley Sims, and I serve as the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Mount Airy in beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are working on episode 13, which I have tentatively titled My Story, which is not very interesting, but it seems to sum up all the feelings that I'm having right now. And I wanted to put this podcast episode up because I've been telling my story a lot to uh, new members of my church and folks who are new visitors to our church who want to know a little bit more about Unitarian Universalism or to know about me. And a lot of the questions that I get are typically about where I'm from, what my theology is, and what I'm doing here as a young Unitarian Universalist minister. I turned 30 over the summer, and I am one of the younger UU ministers in the country. And I am also one of the newest members uh, to the movement, who is also a member of the clergy. So I've only known about Unitarian Universalism for four years at this point. So my story is a little bit different. It's a little bit backwards, and I kind of came to UUism through a side door uh, on the way to somewhere else. But I want to offer up this story as a way of showing that there's not just one path in this beautiful faith of ours, and that there are places for all kinds of people, especially for those kinds of people who are looking for a better way to live, looking to do some work on themselves, to find a better way to be in the world, to find a new way to become something more, to not be satisfied with how life has been, but to reimagine what your life might become. That is definitely what I have found since really embracing a call to ministry and finding my way here to restoration, finding a deep sense of security in my own sense of self, my sense of authority, my sense of ministry, my own personal theology, and how I want to interact with others, how I want to be in the world, how I want to treat my neighbors. And that is so important to me. Uh, and I've been able to share that with a few of my congregants here and with some other people. And it seems like that has been helpful for them. So I wanted to offer that up to you listening here today. So without further ado, let us dive in. It's kind of weird being talking about myself uh, in this format because I, I tell this story to a lot of people because it is part of my formation and my identity. But it's a little bit weird to be talking to my computer into the ether and talking about myself. So apologies for that in advance. As you can probably tell from my accent, I grew up in the great state of Texas, in the West Texas area that we call the Panhandle. So I went to high school in a town called Lubbock, and my family is from the rest of the Panhandle, which is a bunch of small towns. It is very heavily white, heavily conservative, uh, heavily Christian. At least everyone there is kind of nominally Christian, at least when I was growing up. There's been a lot more influx of diversity to the Panhandle in the last 10 years or so, which has caused as you can imagine, quite a few uh, problems with the folks there. It is a wonderful place to be from. I am grateful for everything that I got from being from the Texas Panhandle, and I, I think fondly of my family and history there. But as uh, with many folks around the country these days, it is hard to be from a place like that when you have moved and grown and changed, and it seems like the place where you are from has not. And it is hard to recognize yourself having lived there and to see yourself in the people who are still there. So part of that 
search for my identity uh, begins in West Texas, and the fact that it has changed is very important for me to understand who I am today and where I'm headed today. But in West Texas, where I grew up, I grew up living with my family, and my father left the family when I was about 12. So I grew up mainly with my mom, uh, my older sister, who's two years older, and then I have an adopted, kind of half-adopted brother who has been with me for as long as I can remember. And we grew up, just like everybody else, kind of nominally Christian. We went to the First United Methodist Church in Lubbock. that had very Baptist-y leanings. It was very conservative. It was very white, very traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Went to the Methodist Church. We went to stay with my grandparents. Uh, my extended family is a little bit of a mix of everything. We got some Catholics. We got some uh, some Protestants. We got some others. But in West Texas, everyone is kind of nominally Christian, right? So even if they don't go to church every week, they might be what we call National Guard Christians. National Guard Christian is you go two weekends a year and two weeks in the summer. That's a joke. The thing is, everyone at least says they go to church, and Christianity is so infused into the way of life that it's really hard to think of anything else. And I recall just growing up in that and never really thinking about other religions or having to think about other religions, right? That's the definition of white privilege, that the comfort of not knowing that there is anything different because everything around you is the same. But I remember as I got into eighth grade, feeling a call towards something more, to want to learn more because of September 11th. So I was in eighth grade, September 11th, 2001. And I remember um, going to a class after that and we were talking about history and we started talking about the history of religions. And I remember learning that one of my friends who had a different skin tone than I did was of a different religion than I was, and that she was Muslim. And that was the first time I'd heard that word, apart from on the broadcasts of the news of the terrorist attacks. I didn't think I knew anyone who practiced Islam. And one of my best friends did. And I had known this person for something like 12 years. 10 years. And that's wild. So something was awakened in me. Something was changed in me. I was, I was looking for something, an answer to a question I didn't even know I had. And I couldn't find any answers where I was in West Texas. But I think that started me on the path. And I remember, after September 11th, being out on the football field and having an experience where people turned to me and said, I think we should pray. And everyone looked at me and said, Ken, you should pray. And I didn't really know what to do. But it was kind of clear that people thought I should do it. And it kind of made sense to me, I guess. If they wanted me to do it, I might as well do it. And I think about these two experiences of this opening of seeing that the world is a bigger place than West Texas. And then having a group of my peers look to me and appoint me as a spiritual leader when I had no right to be so, no desire to be so, no instruction on how to do so. And these two things really, I think, jump-started me to where I am today. So 
we go along and I kind of fallen away from organized religion after going to the Methodist church. Uh, things were, you know, changing at home. My sister was getting ready to go to college and I got my driver's license in Texas. I drove a 98 Ford F-150 turquoise pickup with a purple racing stripe and I drove it down to an Episcopal church in Lubbock, Texas. And I was kind of scared about what I might find because I'd grown up Christian, but I'd kind of fallen away from it. We didn't go to church very often. It was something I was thinking about. I believe in God, but I didn't really know how or why or what I was supposed to be doing. And I was a little worried about what I might find in this Episcopal church. And I walked in and I was early and I sat down in the back row of the pew, the very first seat I could find. And I'm sitting there, and the organ is playing, and people are kind of filing in. I'm not making eye contact with anyone. And this hand touches me on the shoulder. And I turn, and there's this lovely, beautiful, elder woman who looks to be in her mid-80s, perhaps, maybe 90. And she has a big smile on her face. And she taps me on the shoulder and says, in the kindliest voice you could imagine, Darling, you're sitting in my seat. And I was, of course, mortified. <laughs> and I said, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. And I slid down the wood pew as far as I could go. And and before I could even finish moving, and she put her pew cushion down, she sat down, and she looked over at me, she said, pointed at me and said, hey. She gave a finger like, hey, come here. She said, no, don't get too far away from me. Sit right here. Keep me company. And so I scooted back down. And I sat with her, and she walked me through what was going on in the church service, who was who, who the minister was, asked me where I was from, who my family was. The most gracious, welcoming reception you could ask for. I had been so worried and scared about what I might find, and I was so put off by what happened immediately. But then immediately after, she welcomed me back, said, sit right here next to me. And I think about this moment a lot, of what it felt like to be welcomed to this space where I didn't know if I was welcomed, I didn't know if I needed to pass a test or know somebody beforehand, I didn't know what the movements were, what the theology was. But I felt drawn to find answers and to ask questions. And she let me do that. And she asked me to call her Miss K, which is what I'll call her now. And at the end of the service, she said, well, will I see you next week? And I said, yes, ma'am, I think you will. And I came back the next week, and Miss Kay was not there. And I came back the next week, and Miss Kay was not there. And the third week I came back, the priest of St. Paul's let us know that Miss Kay had passed away after a brief illness. And I, I'm kind of tearing up thinking about it because what an incredible gift that I received that I did not deserve, but that I needed in that moment. And I'm not usually one to look for spooky signs or mystical experiences, but there is something important about that moment in my life. And I'm in awe of it, and I revel in the mysterious wonder of it. Because I know that had Miss K treated me differently 
I would not be here as a minister. I don't know if I'd be here as a person, if I'd be alive. I don't know. There was a lot going on in my life at that point. So I'm thankful for these small moments of awakening, of seeing the world in a different light, of being treated warmly and welcomingly to a place where you don't know if you're welcome. And I've sought to live that out in my life in honor of Miss Kay, in honor of, of everyone who's ever taught me something worth knowing, in honor of my grandparents. I talk a lot about my granddad, who was a, a philosophizer and a, a moralizer and a preacher in a lot of ways as a cattle rancher in West Texas. And so I've always been drawn to searching for a new way to live, a better way to be, not out of fear of the old Christian idea of sin, but out of this more positive feeling like there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, looking around where I grew up and growing up, when I grew up, hearing all of the anti-other rhetoric, the anti Islam, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic in some ways, anti-person of color, just hateful things spouted in the name of Christianity, in the name of West Texas, really affected me and let me know that there's got to be a better way to do this, right? So I was, I was painfully aware of, of racism in the world after that point. I think a lot of us had that awakening. And I was aware that it was in my family and then I became aware that it was in me. And so I started to, to shift a little bit while I was in high school. And by this time, I got an opportunity to go to college. I had an opportunity to come to the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And to leave West Texas and leave my bubble, to get outside my comfort zone, and to be transformed, is the best decision I could have made. And it was because I had the, uh, the ability to go, and we found the money to do it. And it changed my life because I was able to study religion at William & Mary in a way that I really wanted to. I didn't have any intention of working in a church, right? I was pretty sure I didn't want to do that, but I kept thinking back to that day on the football field when people asked me to pray to lead the prayer. I kept thinking about how it felt to learn that one of my best friends came from a different culture, a different religion that I had never thought to ask about. And I was so curious to let those things play out. So I did a lot of religious studies courses at William & Mary, and I got to study about East Asian religions and about Islam and about Judaism and to dive in to Hinduism and all these different, excuse me, resources and traditions that were outside my own that I had never thought to think about, right? As a, an unknown unknown, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> Right? But I was starting to learn what I didn't know, and that was helping me to seek out change and to ask better questions and to seek deeper answers. And I did not want to work in a church. I was pretty sure of that. I really wanted to coach basketball, but I had to find something to do. And so as I was taking these courses, I stayed away from Christianity because I grew up in that. And I felt I knew it pretty well, at least nominally, because I'd been to going to church for a while at that point. And so in diving into all these different religions, that really helped me start to think about, oh, there's, there's something deeper going on here. There's something more mysterious to all of this. My path isn't, can't be the only path. There's too much richness and depth and history and beauty in all these other sources. 
right? And we haven't even gotten to my discovery of humanism yet, or atheism. That's another mind blower. But after I got out of college, I got an opportunity to teach at a middle school, and I was teaching and coaching basketball, and I was helping to teach comparative religion and an elective course called Peace and Justice. So I was doing social justice work with these young kids, and we were learning about different religious traditions, and a lot of it was about mentoring and helping kids to ask questions of how do I want to be in the world, right? For these young kids of color, the world has a set tradition of what kind of person you might turn out to be, and it can be hard to defy those odds, right? So I was always encouraging kids to think more, think bigger, think outside what you see around you, think outside of New Haven, Connecticut, in the same way that I thought outside of West Texas. The vast difference being that I am a straight, white, Christian male from the heart of Trump country and have been given every privilege and every access in the world, literally since the beginning of time. And we had to talk about that with kids. That is different. We were going to have different experiences, but always encouraging them to not be defined by what the world says about you. That to find a community that says, no, we can do something more, we can be something more. We can become something else. And as the great warrior prophet, Coach Taylor of Friday Night Lights once said, to always be clear-eyed and full-hearted. So I'm thinking about that. And I go to a teacher's conference in Baltimore, Maryland. And I think about how much I love teaching about religion. How much I love thinking about religious studies. I was living in an abandoned Catholic convent at the time with all my other teacher friends. It was fabulous. But I, I don't know if I considered myself Christian at that point. I was Christian adjacent, for sure. I was probably more of a classical Unitarian Christian at that point. The role of Jesus and the prospects of the resurrection and what the Christ was were very confusing to me, very hard to understand, and didn't have a whole lot of meaning for me in my life at that point. The idea of God, the idea of an enormous presence and force and depth in the world was very appealing. But while I was working, I read a book by Rob Bell, and I went to this teacher's conference in Baltimore, Maryland, and I met a minister there who lived at Princeton's campus. And when I told him my, a little bit of my story, he said, you got to come to seminary. There's something else going on here. So I went and stayed with him interviewed at Princeton Seminary, somehow got in, and then I was off. I still didn't want to work in a church. I've still never heard of Unitarian Universalism at this point. I'm 22. I guess I turned 23. But I know I want to do social justice work. I know I want to work and teach and ask questions and make a change and be the difference that I want to see in the world. So I joined a wide-eyed band of idealists who were working on some racial justice issues and some social justice issues around Trenton, New Jersey, and around Princeton, New Jersey, and I was living in Philadelphia, and loved every bit of seminary, really found a way to break down my own theology, right? When you go to seminary, especially a traditional Christian seminary, if it is a, a progressive and well-grounded academic seminary, a lot of the stuff that I was taught in Sunday school, in vacation Bible school, gets stripped down and stripped away. And so I really had to re-examine all the things I thought I knew about this faith that I was claiming. Because it turns out I didn't know all that much about it at all. And a lot of things that I had been told 
had been reinterpreted for me. And I got to reinterpret them for myself. And I got to rebuild my own theology that was based in this Christianity, but was becoming so much more alive and so much more progressive and so much more liberating that I started to embrace it a little bit more. And I had to find a place to work. Because to graduate from Princeton, you have to do a seminary field education internship. And I didn't want to work in a church, so I just picked a church in downtown Philadelphia and said, I'll go there. And that was going to be fine. It was going to be a box checked. And I was going to get in and get out and get happy. And there was a bureaucratic paperwork snafu that I won't go into. But long story short, that site was frozen as a place where a seminary intern like me might work. So I had been working as a house painter that summer to help pay for seminary. And I drove up and down the street here in Philadelphia and drove past this beautiful church called the Unitarian Society of Germantown. And I saw that word Unitarian. And I said to myself, I don't know what that means. It means talk about God, but not Jesus and the Trinity. That's fine with me. Probably a good way to describe me, actually. That's fine. And I walked in and I asked if I could work there as an intern. <laughs> And the minister there, my dear friend, Reverend Kent Mathias, took a chance on me, and the congregation took a chance on me, and it was my first introduction to Unitarian Universalism, and I fell in love. I fell in love with the tradition itself. I fell in love with the history. I fell in love with the idealism of the movement. I fell in love with the people at this particular church. I fell in love with the, the integrated and... Uh, the, the theologies from different areas of the world. And I fell in love with the fact that not everyone there had a theistic theology. And I didn't even realize that until I got done preaching my first sermon when someone came forward and said, it's good that we hear Bible stories every once in a while, McKinley. And I said to myself, oh, y'all don't do Bible stories here? It was the same feeling that I had when I learned that my friend was Muslim. And I never thought to ask about it before. I didn't have to ask about it before. I was living in this bubble of privilege and comfort. But it never occurred to me that there might be a church where all these different kinds of people could get together to worship. And instead of being concerning or off-putting or disappointing, it was incredibly exciting and incredibly energizing. And all of a sudden, I got to be the Christian guy at the UU Church and to share a little bit about my experience and to try and, and present a different face to that world. And in return, to hear the stories of others and to be changed and transformed by their experiences, by their faith traditions, and by their spirituality. And it just made me so incredibly happy and feel so grounded and feel like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I've been missing. This is what I've been looking for. These people are here trying to figure out a better way to be, a better way to do something to become more in the world. And I will never forget going back home that first, after the first sermon, and talking to my partner KP, and she said, well, how was it? And I said, it was good. It was the most Jesus-y place I have ever been, and it was the least 
Jesus-y place I have ever been. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, everyone is concerned about social justice and doing good for people and becoming a better person and helping out your neighbor. But there's very little talk of God or spirituality or the Bible. I don't know. It's just, it's very different from what I'm used to. And it's that being different from what I'm used to that I value so much. It's that stepping outside of the comfort zone to be changed and transformed, to get a little pushback on my soul, to have my soul intermingle with the soul of the other and to be changed and transformed and to return to me more grounded and more secure in who I am and who we are as a people. So that whole year that I was working at the Unitarian Society of Germantown, Reverend Kent kept needling me and said, you have to do parish ministry. You have to do parish ministry. And I said, Kent, I don't want to work in a church. That's not what I signed up for. But as the year progressed, I kept falling in love more and more with the mission and the idealism and the wide-eyed love of everyone there. And I said, I need to experience more of this. I need, I need to feel more of this to see if this is really what it's all about or if this is a one-off. And so when I moved to Washington, D.C., and I did an internship there in a bigger church, and my suspicions were confirmed, even at an almost entirely white, older congregation, I still felt the same energy, the, the same pulse, the same quickening, the same mojo going on. And I couldn't help it. I was stuck. Right? I was hooked. I was in it. I'd seen a light. I'd felt the change. And I felt like I was responding to that call from when I was in eighth grade when people looked at me and said, will you pray? I felt like everything was coming full circle, that I'd been had my eyes open to this new world, not just about faith and theology, but about racial justice and about racial issues. I was coming into my own and understanding what it meant, really grappling with what it meant to be a liberal white person here in America, and to recognize that I've been swimming in a sea of racism my entire life, and there's no way I could not be racist. And I recognized it way back when, starting in eighth grade, but to see just how much it permeated my entire life and how much I'd grown up in this privilege and, and comfort where comfort and not rocking the boat was the most important thing. But now that I was in this movement and in this denomination, rocking the boat felt like I, what I was called to do. So when I started looking for church placements, that was really on my mind. Of what is it going to be like to be a young, white, straight, cisgendered, male, Christian, identifying person in this movement? And I felt a little insecure about that. Because even while I was at the height of privilege, I was stepping into a space where that privilege is rightly confronted and where I have to grapple with that all the time. And it can be a little uncomfortable. And I found that instead of being disappointing or off-putting, it was energizing. It was exciting. And it made me think Oh, yeah, this is where it's at. So I got to serve at a mental health hospital in Washington, D.C. and do a lot of deeply 
reflective and intensive work on myself and my relation to my peers of color and what it meant to be a white person in a person in a place of authority where most of the patients of this hospital are people of color and the responsibility that comes with that means that I had to be so sure of myself. I had to really work on grappling with all my demons and all my fears and all my insecurities about who I was. At the same time, making sure that I was not imposing my stuff on another. And that exercise of learning to become so secure with myself, to name all of my stuff and all of my baggage, all of my isms, put it out on the table, and process it with others in a sacred space made me so comfortable and secure in that discomfort that I learned to crave, to love the uncomfort, the discomfort, the non-comfort. I learned to crave those times of transformation because I knew it was helping me to become something else and it was preparing me for what might be coming down the way in this geopolitical climate and stepping into a role of ministerial authority and stepping further into Unitarian Universalism. Because at this point, if you're keeping track, I have only been in Unitarian Universalism for three years. Brand newly minted by the MFC, applying for my first church position, I have only known about the existence of the people that I'm going to work for for four years. So all of the, the traditions and the values and the cultural lingo and the cultural language and the cultural experience of UUism. I didn't have all that. I had my experience as a white person, which in a lot of ways is the majority experience of being a UU. I had my experience as being a liberal person, also in some ways the majority experience of being a UU. But to put it all together, I knew it was going to be a challenge, but it was something that I was prepared for and something that I was craving because seeing the movement from the outside has given me a little bit of a different perspective, I think. And I value that. I value being a little bit different. I value being a little bit more traditional in some ways. Because part of my tradition of growing up in West Texas, along with all the bad stuff, the isms and the hatred and the heat, Along with all that is a deep tradition of hope. That hope runs deep where I'm from, and it runs deep within me. And that light of hope that is within me has not been quenched yet as a 30-year-old person having quarter-life crises, has not been quenched by the election of 2016, has not been quenched by all the horrible stuff that happens every day. It's threatening. But it has not been quenched. And that comes back to the very beginnings of my call story. When I felt the world open up to see a different side of life and to feel propelled and pushed and, and pulled towards something different. When people asked me to pray, to see the world in a different light and to ask others if they can see it too. And to not tell people how to live or what to do, but to ask people to think differently and to point the way with my own story. To say, this is where I came from, and this is where I am now. And the light that I see in this darkness is something that has propelled me and powered me 
and will not let me down. Where do you see that light in your life? Because going back to my roots of Christianity and hope, right? I identify with the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, who comes up in the story, and the first thing he says when the Hebrew God says, Jeremiah, I've called you to be a prophet. Jeremiah says, how can it be that you're calling me? I'm only a boy. I am only a boy. Yet Jeremiah is the one who hangs tight, holds fast, and points out the light in the darkness to others. And I think we need a little bit of that in Unitarian Universalism. Because it's tough out there right now. It feels like we're in the desert. It feels like we are in the dead of night. It feels like there is not hope to be found that's concrete. But I believe that it is my calling, and that's a word that I struggled with forever. I hated the idea of call, because that sounds so like elitist and anthropomorphic, and like someone or something calls you to the ministry. Right? For me, it was much more like I felt pulled towards something, like a gravitational force, or like something was attracting me, or, or in some sense pushing me towards it. But whatever it is, whatever process it is that started when I was in eighth grade, continued when I walked into the church and met Miss K, led me through college and into seminary, through the halls of a mental health hospital, and here to Philadelphia. I've given up on asking why or struggling with questions about my fitness for it or my insecurities for it. I've come to accept it as we say in Philadelphia, to trust the process. And I'm excited to be here to help point out the light in the darkness. Because in the tradition where I come from, when you find your ground, your center, your depth of being, when you find that universal love that's in your heart, that divine spark, that which can't be quenched, that which is greater than anything that could be conceived, that which is unnameable, when you find that within yourself, that core that you can always come back to, regardless of what your theology is, when you find that light within you, you can plunge into the darkness. Because as we say, in that light there is no darkness at all. And that's a very encouraging thought. And something I want to bring to Unitarian Universalism, even when things get tough, even when we fight, when we break covenant, when we bicker, that we find ways to come back together. We find ways to keep asking the questions of how can we be better? How can we become something more, become our highest selves, treat one another better, live in this covenantal understanding of love, promote these principles? How can we be better humans? How can we live more humanely? That is hard work. And if we can always find the light in our darkness, including that darkness which is in ourselves, if we know that at the center of us is light, and we let that light shine across our church, across our city, across our country, then we're teaching others how to love. We're teaching others how to shine their light. And if we keep loving and lighting the way, pointing out that in 
the light of the Holy and the light of the Spirit, in the light of truth, there is no darkness at all. If we keep loving and loving and loving and practicing loving until we don't know anything else, then I think we're on our way to building beloved community. And that is my hope for us. That is my hope for you. And it is my hope for me that we may continue down this path together, walking on different trails, headed in the same direction, and that we all meet in the end at the kingdom of the good, that beloved community, that sanctuary that is big enough, strong enough, wide enough, tall enough, loving enough to welcome us all into a transformative relational experience with one another, where we can all be the best humans we can be and make this world a little bit more like heaven. As the man said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May that be so, friends, and amen. If you want to know more about McKinley, you can follow him on Twitter at McKinleyLSims, that is at McKinleyLSims, or on his blog and website, uuministry.com backslash McKinley Sims. That's uuministry.com backslash McKinley Sims. 